Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knocks. This is Adam Frommel here with my always fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli. We are recording a Who You Got episode here. We're going to be posing some questions about whether you'd have player X or player Y, in some cases, team X or team Y for variable amount of time. They, they might be for the rest of this season. They might be for the rest of their careers, maybe just a few years in the future. Uh, Dan has come up with a couple of these. I've come up with a couple of these. Uh, our, our, our listeners have, have also come up with some via Twitter, via our Discord channel. Um, the, we are recording this about a week before it is publishing uh, to account for Dan taking a well-deserved, very rarely seen vacation. So some of the numbers, if we, if we do lean on any of those for these comparisons, might be a little bit out of date. So just keep that in mind. But the general sentiments won't be because these comparisons really shouldn't change over the course of a week. And if they do, then that's that's bad analysis by us. So this that should still so feel fresh. Close that it can shift on a whim like that. That's fair. It shouldn't still. I'm with you. We try we both we both try not to be like too reactive. Uh, fair enough. But some of these guys, most of these scenarios are just of such young players and teams that maybe you are kind of straddling like very fine lines here because the samples. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, let's, how are you doing before we kick this off? I'm hanging in there. Sick toddlers are always rough, especially when they have to stay home while you're working and wake up a bunch during the night. So I'm a little fatigued at the moment, but we're going to put all that aside and and bring a, a high energy episode as always. How about you? I, I'm going to bring a high energy episode as always. I'm under caffeinated at the moment relative to how much caffeine I normally have at this point in the day though. So we'll see. We'll see how what, that what goes. happened to the ninth cup of coffee, uh, man. I don't drink coffee. Uh, it's basically just like pre-workouts and then these amino mm. energy things, but I've, I have sub 500 milligrams of caffeine in me right now, which is just very uncharacteristic for it's 11.30 a.m. Eastern time. There's normally more. If I work out early in the morning, there's more caffeine in my body than that. You work out? No, uh, rarely. That's why there's some caffeine in my body. I just don't work out. That's anymore. fair. That's fair. Let's start with the listener ones. Uh, you thought about this one a lot. It was from uh, Demos Cool. Asked, who you got? Shea Gilgis-Alexander or Tyrese Halliburton? And if there are no specifications in the scenarios that were posed to us, I'm just assuming you mean for their career arcs in general. That's what I assumed. I have another one. I thought I had a more apt one for Halliburton, but you thought about this one a lot. So I thought about this one a lot because I like I wanted to convince myself that Halliburton could be the answer. And I, I don't think I ever got there because Shea, even though this is his fourth season in the league, he's still only 23. And he's demonstrated that he can capably serve as that number one option. So that's, that's the thing that it keeps coming down to for me, where even with the expansions of Halliburton's game, which was already so remarkably well-rounded, in his second season, we're, we're seeing him create more off the bounce, serve more as a primary initiator for offense, whether in Sacramento or Indiana. The passing skills look even better. But like the, the track record that, that SGA has already shown admittedly for a tanking thunder team, like the, the three point shot hasn't been there yet, but the self-creation skill has the ability to improve those around him. And to do that while he's the subject of an inordinate amount 
of defensive attention on a nightly basis because who else needs to be featured on that scouting report for the last few years? So at the time that we're recording this, you know, he's still averaging 24.4 points, 5.0 rebounds, 5.9 assists. And granted, like the efficiency isn't quite there, but only as a shooter. He doesn't turn the ball over. He plays decent defense. He fills yeah. a, a, I said decent. <laughs> he fills a super high volume offensive role. I, I think he's kind of what Halliburton hopes to, to turn into down the road. And we've seen that go south so many times. I'm not saying it will for Halliburton, but when you have a player who's the aspiration is for him to turn into the other player, go with the other player, especially when they're still only 23. I would agree that it's Shea here, but as you were talking, thinking about it more, it's probably a closer line than I It's really close. Because Halliburton, I think the swing difference here would be, look, Shea's efficiency is down from the perimeter this year, but he is just entirely responsible for all of his own looks, basically still. And I'm curious to see, maybe that's the role he always has in OKC, fine. But like, give him better spacing to work with at least then. And I think those percentages go up. The swing thing might just be, though, Halliburton has has been better as a one-on-one scorer than I thought that he would. Like, there's just a dis... It's not as... What Shea does is very in-your-face because you know he can do it now. There's still, like, a disarming subtlety to Halliburton's on-ball game. And if he starts hitting off the dribble triples or serving as more of like an eye. And we've seen it from what I've watched anyway, of the Pacers with him, like he's had some of that agency. So it's really not out of the question. I do think there's a chance he ends up being the better defender, but Shea should be the better defender. He should be. I don't know if he will be. Maybe it's, he's just been like saddled with this monstrous offensive role, even with Josh Giddy there. I would still take Shea. It's just, he's more established at this point and the, the level of difficulty on his role, whether you're talking about Sacramento Tyrese Halliburton or Indiana Tyrese Halliburton, it's been just so much greater. And to have the numbers and efficiency that he does and to be as important to OKC's offense as as he is, I, I think it has to be him at the moment. But man, Halliburton is so good. So I, good. He's And my other one was, unless you have anything to add on this one specifically. Kind of do, but go, go for your other one first. I had Maxi or Halliburton, and maybe I'm just drawn to them because they are coming out of the same draft class. Uh, I think the question gets harder to answer now that Maxi's the third option in Philly when they're at yeah. full strength. But looking at what Maxi did before Harden got there, and then the Sixers have been kind of all over the place. If you actually believe in Tyrese Maxi, it feels like a real conversation because I think his defense is almost underrated. Like the energy with which he plays there and how in your face he can be, uh, where where Halberton is really solid and he'll make plays away from it. But like it, Maxi feels like the guy eventually. He's not big enough to do this, but like go defend whatever guard and it could be the toughest matchup and it's, he'll be able to handle it. And that's, there's real value in that. I don't think Halbert nor Shea Gilchrist Alexander profiles that type of player at their right. peak. I, I, I don't know that I'm there yet with Maxi to the point that I'd compare him to Halliburton still high on his upside, but just exponentially higher with Halliburton. I think my my last point here, and this will also apply to basically all of these comparisons. This is the time of year where I spend way too much of my free time looking at fantasy baseball projections and and trying to prepare for drafts. And I think there's a, a common misconception with projection systems that people are trying to pinpoint the exact number that 
a player is going to have, whether it's home runs or stolen bases or batting average. It's it's actually like they're trying to project project the most likely outcome. And there are certain projection systems like ATC that are sophisticated enough that they can look at ranges of outcomes, assign likelihoods to them, and then boil it down to a specific number. So that's relevant here because I'm operating under the most likely outcome. So to me, 70% of the outcomes are going to be SGA has a better career than Halliburton. But if you look at how the tails work, I would say that Halliburton's potential peak, like that 5% outcome, is probably higher. So the most likely outcome is not necessarily the same as the best case scenario outcome. And I think that's, that's a big one here because I would bank on SGA as the most likely better career because of the level to which he's already ascended. If you asked me who has a chance to have the best career, if everything goes right, I'm probably on Halliburton's side there. Versus SGA? I think so. Wow. I still think I'd lean SGA. I'd pretty easily still go Halliburton over Maxi. Uh, that yeah, might have been. I think a, that's an easier one. That would have been a better question. And it was my own, by the way. It wasn't that one, wasn't a listener's. It would have been better, like pre James Harden trade, just based off like the, the role that Maxi was in. This one comes from J Dobbs 94. Franz Wagner or Scotty Barnes, who, who you got? Who is the highest ceiling? I don't, I have one for Franz Wagner. I'm not putting him. The Raptors are running their crunch time offense through Scotty Barnes right now. That is a thing that is actually happening. And he's probably still better on defense than offense. I don't know. I, I don't know, man. The passing he's shown, his ability to get through guys and the touch. Inside it's getting the closer. I think I'd still take the defensive versatility that he has. And, just, and that's to say that I, I think this is still an easy answer. Wagner has had a tremendous rookie season, one that would land him in the rookie of the year conversation almost any season. And it's not his fault that he happens to be a first year player at the same time as these three other like generational feeling players. So he is the most consistent scorer of this rookie class. He stayed healthy. He's also operated with a lot less pressure in an Orlando system that isn't as heavily reliant on him, that isn't getting the best that an opponent has to offer every night he's flying a little below the radar. He deserves a ton of credit. You should be super excited about his potential. He's going to be in all-star conversations down the road, but Scotty Barnes, like we've talked about it on previous episodes. It feels like the ceiling is unfathomable because of the two-way ability. And that's not to say that Wagner is just a horrific defender, but Barnes is an all defensive caliber defender down the road. So it's it's like it doesn't feel premature to me, at least, to say that Barnes could factor into the best player in the world conversation one day. And I just I don't see that with 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 Wagner, even if he's obviously very good. So let's break this up and we'll start with Wagner. I had this one. I don't I'm I think people might feel like it's an egregious insult on behalf of Wagner. And I actually don't. But who you got for their careers their outcomes, Franz Wagner or Denny Avdia? Pretty easily Wagner at this point. Oh, wow. I might take Avdia. The defensive mm. versatility that we've seen from him in Washington, and I just don't think they've tapped into his offensive potential yet. And that's the thing. I wonder 
if it's as high as we think. That's that's that might be the discrepancy here because Washington has had no excuse to not try to tease more of it out, and it just hasn't happened. Fair, I guess. Just for someone who's a sophomore and has come along so much defensively, uh, it feels like some of the other stuff. I mean, there's like a real physicality and touch to his game when he can get inside the arc and is is moving downhill. And look, just, Franz Wagner has shown more on the ball. That's yeah. I think I think there's a realistic scenario in which Advia never has an offensive season as good as the one Wagner's having right now. Oh wow! I'll blame that on the Wizards if that ends up happening. Man. And and that's like that's not even an, an insult to Advia necessarily. Like Wagner has been that good offensively as a rookie. Yeah. I, I I don't know. I guess I respect any obvious defense a little bit too much here and think that he's being underutilized on offense still, but the point of his still sort of being underutilized post Spencer Dinwiddie, post Bradley Beal's injury, that's certainly a concern there. But I guess I'm looking at the growth as a defender. feels like mm-hmm. that was a harder jump to make than Franz Wagner coming in and playing like perfect number two or number three style basketball where the pressure is just not on like you said, the pre- like you, you have Wendell Carter Jr. there. You have Jalen Suggs. Those two are at least higher in the pecking order than he is immediately. Uh, Avia is, of course, not at top of mind in Washington's pecking order. But his I, it's well pointed out. I would have Franz Wagner probably third or fourth in my Rookie of the Year voting right now, so I'm not anti-Franz Wagner in that discussion. But I think it's closer than your immediate answer would imply. That's fair. The other breaking up this would be Scotty Barnes versus Cade Cunningham versus Evan Mobley. Who you got? I feel like I spend at least five minutes a day thinking about this right now. Um, I I don't even know. Like there, I wrote about this recently where it's like I feel like Rookie of the Year is almost irrelevant this season because we should just be so universally excited about their futures in different ways. And it's so exceedingly rare to have three first-year players who you legitimately feel could enter that best player in the world conversation. You know, Mobley, because he can do everything on defense. And I would argue that he's been the defensive linchpin of the Cleveland Cavaliers unit, even if Jared Allen tends to get a little bit more recognition. He also has that, like, I don't know if you want to call it LaMarcus Aldridge style offense sometimes. Like sometimes it even looks like a little Kevin Durantish as lofty a comparison yeah, it's, as that can be. It feels more Kevin Garnett meets Kevin Durant than anything LaMarcus Aldridge ever did, to be honest with you. There's like there, I get that they could probably be this. I don't see really LaMarcus Aldridge in him at all. Yeah, it's more like the shot selection than the aesthetics, I think. Okay. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, Barnes, we already talked about where it's this ridiculous two-way ceiling as well. The defensive versatility from a wing player, he's showing more as a passer. Uh, and then Cade Cunningham, like talk about already being an offensive fulcrum, which is the hardest role to fill. So I, I think because of that, even, w- even though he will not be as good on defense as the other two, I think Cunningham has done enough in the second half of the season as the unquestioned engine of a suddenly competitive Pistons team that he'd be my number one. And then Mobley is my number two. And I I hate that I have to put Barnes at number three, but someone has to fill that role. Yeah. So I would have Kate at number one as well. There's like, I know their games aren't similar, but the control 
he has, and even his defensive potential, but I don't think Chris Paul has all defense selections. I don't think Kate Cunningham is going to get there. I sometimes yeah. wonder this watching him is like, what if Chris Paul was six, nine, that's, that's the, type of the feeling I've had too. I was, I was scared to say that out loud. So I'm glad you did instead of me. And now I can just agree with you. It's not rooted in the, the, the functionality of his game per se. It's just, he has the, these entire defenses on the string. It feels like he forges instant chemistry with like Marvin Bagley comes in there and then Kay's already connecting on him with lobs, like right off the bat, like just future all-star Marvin Bagley. <laughs> I don't have a, who you got for Marvin Bagley. I'm sorry. <laughs> Cause uh, he'd be better than everyone. So I, I have him number one, just it, the fact that that's springing to mind is just like, it yeah. has to be, and he look, he starts off the season injured. He's on the worst team easily of the three. And I know people have like kind of harped on his efficiency, but even that is perked up like ever since he returned to the lineup um, most lately, where he's hitting over 50% of his twos, still sub 30% on his threes. He's not taking easiest threes. And there's also, he does feel though, what I will say that if you were to place another star around him, that he is more easily integrated alongside someone else who's more ball dominant than Mobley or I think Scotty Barnes will end up being the toughest to do that. And there are things you can do with them since they're like quasi big. Well, Mobley is a big and Barnes can be used as a big two. And we've shown that Barnes, when he's not the primary option, can be effective. But like if you gave Cade, like literally, I just feel like Cade is the guy, not on the Steph level where he elevates everyone around him, can play with anyone, but he can play with almost anyone. And I don't know that on offense, I don't know if you could say the same about Mobley or Barnes long-term. So I have Cade. Uh, this is... I, Evan Mobley is my rookie. It's so of hard. Evan, and this is really to me is like a, it's a fair question against all three, but it feels like Mobley versus Barnes is the actual discussion. I have Barnes ahead of Mobley because of what Toronto is like. It's been baptism by fire on offense of late. And I kind of love it, but there is, there's a lot more of Mobley to plumb on the off. Like he can, the way he can move with the ball in his hands on offense still, it wouldn't shock me if this ends up being a terrible take. And the fact that he's already sort of a, a defensive anchor or no worse than the second most important defensive player. Uh, I still think he's the most important when you look at the, not just the number of shots he's contesting, but just like the spectrum of assignments that he has is is wild. I would go Barnes. I think the offensive ceiling is, is higher there for him. That being said, is this, I don't want to be reductive here, but for them, it could come down to a matter of, and Barnes might have to be a little bit better at this, given how good Mobley will be on defense it kind of comes down to like who has the better like perimeter game. It doesn't have to be a floor perimeter mm-hmm. game necessarily, but who's going to, we've seen stretches where Scotty Barnes can hit jumpers and hit threes, but nothing ever sustainable. Mobley's going to have that range. It might like the margins here might be that thin where it comes down to something like that. Even if you don't think that I'm right in what it comes down to, that's how fine the line feels between these two. Yeah, it's, I still think the most likely outcome is Mobley just because of the, the role that he can fill on both ends, but it's, it's just razor thin. I do think again, going back to that, if everything goes right scenario, I think Mobley pulls well ahead there. If we're talking about like that 99th percentile outcome where I can see a future in which he has a scoring title and a defensive player of the year. I don't know that I can see that for Barnes. I, I I can't for Barnes, but I can't I can't see that I could see Barnes getting a scoring title. I can't see Mobley. Uh, oh, see, I'm I'm actually the opposite way, where I can see Barnes getting Defensive Player of the Year, 
but I struggle more to see him winning a scoring title. Wow. I mean, I mean, and that says a lot the right Raptors there. Aren't fucking around with his that says a lot right there that like we're both we're we're airing on the, on like winning different major awards. Like that that says more than maybe anything else we've said to this point about how fucking good these guys are. Let's get to this team one from JT Alexander. If this Clippers team and their stars can stay healthy, who are you choosing to win more championships over the next three seasons? The Clippers or the field? Who you got? It's always the field. It is always the field. It's always the field. If you, let's say they're all healthy and they stay together. The Clippers versus the Nets for the next three years. Right. Who you got? That's what you were thinking? No, I, I think you could do that with a number of different teams. And that's why you take the field. No, no, I'm asking you Clippers versus Nets. That is the actual question. Oh, I know, I know, I know. But the, to, to the actual question, I mean, I'm, I'm still taking the Nets. Like that, if if we're also assuming health there, and we're assuming that Kyrie Irving is allowed to play basketball. That is a big-ass assumption. But yeah, go ahead. I, I mean, the vaccine mandates are not going to be in place forever. Right. I would pick the Clippers, though. And there's... The that team feels more dynamic where you're looking at the construction of this roster. I don't think Ben Simmons is going to be as clean of a fit on offense as people think. And I'm throwing injuries out of the equation here. You have wings galore on this Clippers team and where they can still play big. They have Zubats, they have Hartenstein, but you can put like between Nick Batum and Amir Coffey, they just have all these dudes that are between six six and six nine. It can play whatever. But are we are we comparing a forty year old Nick Batum and Amir Coffey to Ben Simmons? Okay, but they also have Marcus Morris. There's that team. They have Reggie Jackson. They have Terrence Mann. Plus a healthy Paul George. And right. Kawhi. There's. I mean, there's there's more depth for sure. But like, still, what they have Kevin Durant, awesome Kyrie Irving, and Ben Simmons. Here's they do fit together. Okay, on both they, ends. They, they don't. On offense, the the Simmons versus er- with Durant and Kyrie, like we have to get away from just assuming it's going to work. Ben Simmons, fine. We've seen him hang out in the dunker. They spot have not before. lost a game together yet. <laughs> but is he going to be okay in that role full time? Or people talk about using him as the screener. Newsflash, it rarely happened in Philly. And when it did, the results weren't great. I'm inclined not to necessarily read or take away anything from it because of how small sample it was. But I'm not willing to just say that it's a given. He's an offensive fit there. And then you move on to the rest of the roster. There's just no wings. Oh, the rest of the roster is not comparable. But like, we're also, I would assume that those rosters are going to change over the next few years as well. Are, are we just assuming they have the same exact roster? Because when I when I hear these questions, I'm thinking like, oh, they have draft picks. They okay, have okay, so cap here, space. Here's a better question. Clippers front office or Brooklyn Nets front office? Who you got? Me? Oh, definitely, definitely the Clippers. Clippers. Definitely the Clippers front office. (laughs) Absolutely. The Nets front office is just laid down and completely lost control of that team. It feels like, which I would acquiesce to whatever Kevin Durant wanted. That he is one of the ten greatest basketball players of all time. I get it, but they have not been particularly creative. And look, Cam. We need to we need to do that discussion at some point because it feels like there are enough top 10 candidates playing right now that we need to like reevaluate that tier because just throwing out top 10 and I'm not criticizing you here, like just throwing out top 10 when like now we have to factor in Katie and Steph Curry and LeBron that's like, and LeBron, but I mean, LeBron's been in it for a while. And Frank, 
like that's just that's obviously in the top 10 obviously but like i mean Giannis is on on pace to be in that club like he's not there yet that'd be a good offseason pod i have a yeah i have a follow-up to this who you got though healthy clippers healthy nuggets the next three years who you got oh definitely the nuggets there i don't think that one's even close i don't i mean Jokic is the best player of the bunch by a significant margin so you think I, I am fully of the belief that Michael Porter Jr.'s early season struggles were due to the injury that has since kept him out. I do think that the player we saw last season is much more akin to what we're going to see moving forward. Jamal Murray was on an all-star trajectory. There's a ton of depth there. There's there's just a lot to like about that Nuggets team. Let me phrase it this way then. Everything caked in. Injury risks and everything. Nuggets versus Clippers. Does that change it at all? It does yeah. change it. Um, I'm not. I'm not worried about Jamal Murray long term, just because we've seen players tear their. Uh, they they yeah. matter. Let's make that clear. But they're not. They, they matter, but they're not career enders or anything like that at this point. They're not indicative of future injury woes or anything. MPJ. That conversation is different. But I don't trust either Kawhi or Paul George to stay healthy. So I, I think, given Jokic's status as this Iron Man now where he only sits out because the team asked him to, and he's been better about accepting some more limitations this year. We've seen no injury concerns whatsoever. His game should continue to get better. There's no part of his game that should decline with age. I, I don't see any reason to pick against him right now. Yeah. Okay. That's, I, I think I take nuggets in both ways too, but if you remove the Porter junior, I thought this is, the extent to which I consider it. I don't think it's a fair one, but all the factors involved, I thought about doing an RJ Barrett or Michael Porter Jr., who you got. And that's because that is of, a fun one. Because of MPJ's health, and I think I what I view as RJ's ceiling as a playmaker and defender versus MPJ's, I think it's an actual discussion, but it feels a little unfair because Michael it, Porter Jr.'s yeah. peak has still been way higher than RJ Barrett's best. 10 game stretch. You could use the 10 game rolling rating. Maybe I'm just spewing, um, you know, lies here, but I would argue like Michael Porter Jr.'s 10 game peak on offense is way higher than RJ Barrett's like best 10 game peak. So let's, I thought if you want to vamp here, I can, I can figure that out. The shout out to Luke J 37, by the way, he had Evan Mobley or Scotty Barnes long-term. I did not see that when we said it. So we had uh, the, the question that we posed, I think you throw Kate in there too. But the Mobley Barnes, and maybe some people might just think all three of those guys have best player in the league potential, I think is what they've flashed. Uh, I would say I'm picking Barnes even thinking or even knowing that Evan Mobley is sort of has the higher end outcome. Like you said, the 90th percentile outcome for Evan Mobley feels like it'd be better than Barnes. But for everything Barnes does on offense, it feels like he's more he would be more likely to reach his peak and sustain it. I could just be way off there. That's going to be a fascinating discussion until the end of time though. It 100% is going to be. So to answer your question, um, why is this happening? I'm struggling to find Barrett's right now for some reason, but Michael Porter Jr. peaked with a 10 game rolling player rating of 20.713, which is the 377th highest peak in NBA history. That's and not insubstantial when you consider how many good players. It is absolutely not insubstantial. 
and I'm trying to figure out RJ Barrett because I have like some weird formula thing happening here and my computer is being slow. So I will get back to you on that one in a second. So we have another one from listener Sid Disc asks some love to DeAndre Ayton question mark and how why teams can't plan against him or play him off the floor a la Rudy Gobert or some other traditional bigs. So this essentially seems like a who you got in the playoffs, DeAndre Ayton or Rudy Gobert. Hmm. I mean, I'm still going with Gobert. So am I. And I do think defensively, if you want to play DeAndre Ayton up higher, you can. I think that's also a luxury. It is a testament to what DeAndre Ayton can do. I want to make that clear. It's also a luxury of having both Jay Crowder and Mikael Bridges and even Chris Paul. Like he's not going to be helping out on the back line, but you give Rudy Gobert. I mean, he already had Jay Crowder for a minute, but you give him both Jay Crowder and Mikael Bridges on the team, or even just Mikael Bridges because they already have Royce O'Neal. I think the context of Utah's defense and Rudy Gobert's resume, which is unfairly harshly judged relative to what's happened in the postseason. I'm still taking Rudy Gobert. Now, if you want to have conversations with Aiton about like, you know, some of the, I think he's used, you know, this would, one of the questions I have was DeAndre Aiton or Pennsylvania question was who you got Jaron Jackson Jr. or DeAndre Aiton. I think that's a better one. I'm still going with Aiton here. Um, I, I, I forget who says it on Twitter, but like, and maybe multiple people have at this point, I don't know that anyone is better at just using their size in the NBA. Like if you throw a small lineup at DeAndre Aiden, he is going to take advantage of that. If you don't, he's more capable of just filling a smaller role alongside the sun stars, but the defensive growth that he's shown the understanding of his role and his own limitations is really impressive. I think that Jackson for all the three point shooting prowess for all the, the shot blocking, and he has a legitimate case to be in the conversation for defensive player of the year. There are some games where he calls his own number a bit too frequently and can kind of hinder his own team rather than help it. I don't see that from Aiden. So especially in a playoff scenario where schematic adjustments within the course of a series are so important, I I think that I would count on Aiden a little bit more. I didn't go like that wasn't one. The actual one I have is who you got, Jaron Jackson Jr. or John Collins. I'm going with Jaron Jackson Jr. at this point. I'm I don't trust Collins' health. Oh, because I, Jaron Jackson Jr. has been a beacon of good health before this season. You didn't let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> Which means that I am now evaluating just purely on upside. And Collins, for all that he does on offense, just as this tremendous pick and roll, pick and pop option, it's not there on defense. I think I'm with you. But I do feel like John, a healthy John Collins, who, by the way, is out indefinitely as we record this, that's a bummer, is so underrated on offense, and he's been a little bit better on defense than people expect. I think Jaron Jackson Jr.'s offense is comparable, and he probably does has the freedom to do a little bit more on the ball. I would call Collins the better offensive player, but Jaron Jackson Jr. is probably going to make an all-defense team this year or come close to it. Yes, and, and he should. To circle back real fast, the R.J. Barrett thing, because I do have the number now. So, again, Porter peaked at 20.713. R.J. Barrett's peak in rolling player rating has been 17.577. The fun thing about that, though, is that the peak is right now. It's a Look, if you, I'm just going to pose it to you with everything on the table. 
Michael Porter Jr. or R.J. Barrett, who you got? Every, I think, you, I think you have to go with Barrett because the injuries from Porter are just so immensely concerning. You know, we're, we're not talking about a, you know, a, a leg buckling. We're talking about consistent back issues, back issues that drove his stock down, that caused him to miss an entire season that are now rearing up once again. Those are immensely concerning. If he does get healthy, the sky is the limit, but it's a big if because we don't know how long he's going to stay healthy. So you have to have that in the back of your mind at every part of the analysis. I'm glad I'm not too homery here because I had RJ Barrett as well, which is why I didn't want to pose the question because I thought it was going to be too much of a coward to say it, but I don't know. And maybe it's because Porter Jr. has never been put in this situation, but I think we even saw it in the playoffs last year. RJ Barrett is ready to play uh, a role on the ball where he's not as efficient, but I think there's going to be a much better playmaker there at some point. We've already seen his ability to get to the rim over this past, you know, 20, 30 game stretch, whatever it's been for him since he started attacking consistently. And he's already just been worlds better on defense. I think he's probably not been as good this year as he was last year, but there's been a lot of things wrong with the Knicks this year. And I do still feel like he's someone that you can say, go guard the second best player on the team if he's going to be the two, three, and maybe even the four. Um, and just his awareness off the ball. And a lot of this is coming from last season. I'll say that. I don't know that Michael, Michael Ward Jr. is actually basing this off nothing from this season that we saw from him. His off-ball defense has gotten a lot better to the extent that he will play make on defense. It's probably not consistent. It's not a constant, but there's that. I also wonder, though, how does this back stuff affect him on that? And like, there is a, there's an outcome where maybe he, this always crops up a little bit, but he's still an offensive superstar because of the way that he can shoot. And maybe it's not a ton off the dribble, but the way that he can kind of move away from the ball and just get looks off over anybody. How does this impact him defensively long-term if the back stuff continues to crop up? Probably not well. The other thing I will say is we need to get a scan on the amount of cartilage that RJ Barrett has left in him just because he has played almost two full seasons for Tibbs. That's something we do. And that was my next question was who you got (laughs) Tibbs or anyone else as the New York Knicks head coach. We're moving on. I don't think he's fully to blame for everything that's happening there, but to say that his job should be secure is blasphemous. And I think if anything, it just implies that you're not good. Still you're continuing to not place enough stock in the youth in the roster. And that's, and that's totally fair because 98% to blame is not the same as fully to blame. I still love, and I mentioned this, I think I've mentioned this on my consecutive podcast now, I love that he came out and said the Knicks play young guys more than anyone else. Even over the last like few weeks, that is still categorically untrue. Just absolute inanity for him to say that. Um, I don't know if you can open Discord because we have a one from Darkwing Duck, and it feels like the question was made for you to read because I'm having trouble processing it. But I have another one to stick with Grizzlies and Hawks here. Trey Young or John Morant, who you got? Why are you doing this to me? That's my answer. Pass. <laughs> um, with so much reluctance, I think I have to go with John Morant because, as flammable as Trey Young is as on offense, like one of the few players who can justifiably be called an offensive system unto himself. And I've I've been a, a, a strong supporter of the idea that his defense or complete lack thereof it, it does not mean that he is 
not a current fringe MVP candidate, like we're talking way back of the ballot or a future one, because what he does on offense is so ridiculously vital and a healthy Hawks team was at least theoretically supposed to be built to cover up for some of those flaws, play into them in a way that he can at least gamble for steals and whatnot. And and that just hasn't happened. But those defensive concerns and the need to plan around them do still exist in a way that they don't for John Morant. So we're seeing this season what a Morant-led team could do. And granted, that, that supporting cast in Memphis is utterly ridiculous. Just the amount of depth, the amount of talent, the amount of upside, it is unfathomable and should make every other team envious, almost every other team, I suppose. But he's also filling that lead offensive role with a plum. I mean, he is a dominant, aggressive scorer. He's a really good passer. Is he as good at those things as Trey Young is? Probably not. But he's also not nearly as bad a defender. And that probably does matter when we're splitting hairs in a conversation about two people who should be mainstays in the NB in the MVP conversation for the better part of the next decade. So it's one of those where it's, it's so tough because Trey can win any game by himself. We've seen him be able to win playoff series by himself. Moran hasn't done that yet. He'll get a chance to this postseason. but if you're looking to build a team around one of these two guys, or even in their current situations, I think that the positives outweigh the negatives more strongly with, with John Moran. I struggled on how, when I was thinking about this one, I struggled on how to sort of factor in leadership and selflessness because I don't, I'm not saying Trey young is a bad leader, but there's like a very infectious demeanor about the way John Morant plays and acts away from the court. That joy can of course manifest just because you're winning. It's much tougher to maintain that, but he feels like a dude that players are going to want to play with all the time. I'm not sure if Trey young is that person because he's so ball dominant. That being said, my actual pick is Trey Young because mm-hmm. we haven't seen John Morant be able to, and his team is deeper, maybe not as much or clearly not as much offensive talent, but like the Grizzlies half court offense, if they're not in transition or cleaning up their own misses, like they have real questions. That's not on John Morant, but Trey Young can take the crimpiest of lineups and uplift them into this incredible half court offense. I think that becomes way more valuable in the postseason. Um, I'm, and that's why I would pick Trey Young. Well, it's close for me, but that is the primary reason why. And I'm not saying John Morant can't get to that level, but there is just a dynamic to Trey Young's game when you're looking at the havoc he even creates inside the arc, but also the, the off-the-dribble threes. And I, I, what I also think is a part of his game we haven't seen. I don't know if it's a coaching or a personnel thing to this point, probably a combination of both. There is a reality where you can get Trey Young moving away off the ball. It's like you can... Yes, if you put him off the ball, it does give you someone to stash on him. But like, if you just get him moving, find a way to put him in off-ball actions. No, you don't want Trey Young being your screener, but can you set screens for Trey Young to come off of when he doesn't have the ball? I don't know that John Morant is ever going to profile, maybe as a cutter, but like as a distance shooter to put pressure on the defense from that way. Uh, I respect, not respect, because I, I respect the hell out of John Morant. I think I value Trey Young's, offense more than I value what he's giving you giving back on defense to where it's easier. Absolutely. Tom Rant's gotten better with 
with that uh, defensively this season, especially when he came back after his ankle injury or knee sprain, whatever it was. So it's close. And John Morant, I wouldn't have put him in this conversation before the season. No, so definitely not. Mad about this, they should at least consider the fact John Morant has worked him way or the fact that right now you have to pick John Morant over Zion Williamson. Like that wasn't even who you got at this point for us because it's just like, it has to be John. So the other thing here is that this is a long-term conversation. And I think that they're at fairly comparable levels at the moment. And that means that I'm thinking about how much more room there is for growth. How much better is Trey Young going to get? I think what the Hawks are hoping for is you see more of the same. Like he's probably not going to suddenly become an even better three-point shooter. He's already one of the best passers in the league. He does not have the physical skill set to be even a decent defender. So maybe he gets a little smarter on that end down the road. He learns how to use some veteran tricks and become somewhat better on the defensive end. With John Morant, I feel like there's a path to so much more than we're already seeing because he does have the tools to become an impact defender. And we so often see that that lags behind the offensive growth because that first season of being the unquestioned centerpiece of everything that happens on offense requires such an extreme energy expenditure that you can't also grow on defense. As you become more accustomed to filling that role, you see the subsequent gains on the preventing end. He's shooting 34% from three, but he's a good free throw shooter. The form is there. It seems reasonable to assume that he might not become that off the dribble three-point shooter, Trey Young, Steph Curry, Damian Lillard are, but that he could be a 38% three-point shooter taking four to five attempts per game. So I just, I see more room for growth beyond this current level from John Morant than I do Trey Young. So that's interesting. It's funny that I'm higher on Trey Young in this situation than you are. That's hysterical. I, I think it's close. It's a fair question to have. It is a fair question. So I'll get to the Darkwing Duck one since it. I'll be honest, I don't. I don't get the question either. All right, Darkwing Duck. Uh, we need if, clarification. Yeah, if you hear this, you, we need clarification on it. Uh, I did look up to make sure that I could pronounce one of the names correctly, though. Uh, that he said because I, I knew I would fuck it up, but I do know how to pronounce it correctly now. I just the question was tough for me to synthesize. Here's one that I don't know if it like if people would even care, but who you got, Herb Jones? Or Matisse Seibel? I'll take Herb Jones. Just because he can do more. There's there's the element yes. of he can do more on offense. And the other thing I think, and I don't know if I'm right here, but like Herb Jones is you go cover that guy and erase him from the planet or make his life hell. That's not really what Matisse Seibel does. Matisse Seibel, for his defensive reputation, is somewhat overrated as an on-ball defender. He is just a planet-destroying menace off the ball, but on the ball, not quite that same caliber. Herb Jones is. I, I see like a higher scalable ceiling on defense for Herb Jones, plus the offensive game that he's already displaying as a rookie. It's it's inconsistent, but you can see the pieces there. So I, I do think that if the we, we talked about this on a recent episode where like I think there's more of or actually, no, it wasn't with you. I, I talked about this with, uh, was it with you? Like Are you the podcasting with someone else behind my well, back? Well, I did, I did the guest appearance with uh, Tony East on Locked on Pacers. Um, 
But there was a conversation, and this is how like just mentally fried I am, about whether there's going to be more prominence to like the the dunker's role big time defensive stopper. That was with you, right? Gary Payton and yes. you know guys yeah, who yeah, yeah. So I, I think like if the NBA does trend more in that direction, there should be an opportunity for Tybal to play bigger minutes because there's so much floor spacing everywhere. There's so much offensive creation anywhere, everywhere and anywhere that you can easily station a guy in that dunker spot on offense in a way that allows you to not hinder your team's performance there and get 30 minutes of defensive excellence out of him. We're not seeing that yet. So without that specialization route, I just don't know what the argument is for Tybal here. I, I think there's an argument just because he is doing things away from the ball or in passing lane that we've just never like mm. he's, he's fucking suffocating. He's a blind, he's an eclipse in those situations. This one we're obligated to do LaMelo ball or Anthony Edwards. Who you got? I think I'm on Anthony Edwards side at this point. Just wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, the scoring ability is just supreme. He, it feels like he continues to understand how to read defenses better. He's showing more and more defensive ability as his second year has progressed. And I feel like we've seen a little bit of stagnation from LaMelo Ball. He has the the really flashy plays, but he still makes a lot of bad decisions. He still tries to do mu- too much on a regular basis. And that'll be worked out of his game as he continues to mature at the NBA level. And he's obviously just ridiculously talented and so impactful on the offensive end and increasingly so on the defensive end, but it's hard. You can't teach the athleticism that Edwards has, and he is learning how to harness it more and more for a team that I would say is better by a significant amount. Like granted LaMelo doesn't have the ability to play with Carl Anthony towns as Edwards does, but Edwards is filling a pretty huge role for a pretty good very feisty Timberwolves team. I get the concerns there with LaMelo, especially, and they've tried to change his role a little bit in Charlotte. And as one of our listeners pointed out, I think Jake G um, and that made me look into it. Like they've tried to move him off the ball more to simplify his role. He's just, he's so much more central in a vacuum to what Charlotte does because he has to be in a way that Anthony Edwards doesn't have to be, because you also have D'Lo, you have Carl Anthony Towns. And yeah, I know that Charlotte has Gordon Hayward, but at the end of the day, sometimes, sometimes, yeah, that's what I was going to say is he's been out for roughly forever at this point. And there's Miles Bridges, Miles Bridges in Carl Anthony Towns. There's Terry Rozier. Terry Rozier probably isn't D'Lo. When it comes to offense, you're just better off with a streamlined role for Terry Rozier. Better shooter. He's been real good lately. That's fair enough. Would you take D'Lo or Terry Rozier? That's not <laughs> who you got, but that's. I think I'd take Rozier long term. Wow. Okay. He's easier to fit. Yeah, on teams, but I don't and when know. it clicks, it clicks. Like Delos surprisingly steady for as tumultuous as his first few seasons in the NBA were. But I don't know how much more there is to, to glean from that profile. I'd take Delo. There's like no justification there. I still think it's Lamelo. He's a transcendent playmaker, and this is someone who, if he gets a little bit better, and I think the thing I mentioned, if he's playing off the ball more, uh, maybe that opens things up to where they can get him moving downhill without the ball in his hands, and it improves his finishing and pa- around the rim and pathways to the basket. Like there's already a real like in between game from him. He is also the fact that you can move him off the ball. That's not an option that you have with like Trey yeah. Young. Just they don't move him off the ball in Atlanta. 
Um, he's been a better shooter than I expected. I like his size. And I think Anthony Edwards, the de- the off-ball defensive improvement for him has been real. I think Lamelo is going to end up being like one of the better backcourt defenders by the time that his career is all, not of all time. Such just, good hands, such good anticipation. I can see it. I I don't know if the personnel has optimized him. I also want to see him play with a big that sort of makes sense at both ends to play alongside mm-hmm. him. I do, it's not Plumlee. It's not Trez. They make different levels of sense in certain situations. And like if you gave him Miles Turner, and I, that's not a huge ask when Anthony Edwards car up when Anthony Edwards has like Carl Anthony Towns. So should we push for Rudy Gobert here again? <laughs> Rudy Gobert and Charlotte would be there's your there it is. If you give Lamelo with Rudy Gobert or Anthony Edwards with Carl Anthony Towns. Ooh, I don't know there. That's a fun one. I'd probably go Edwards with Towns because I am so high on Carl Anthony. Right. Towns. Yeah, I think I'm still there, but oh, that fit with Ball and Gobert on both ends would just be immaculate. The how was that for who you got? The I have a team one for you. These three teams for the next five years: Boston, Dallas, and Memphis. Who you got? I would still go with Memphis first. Oh man, that's a that's just an incredibly tricky one. You know, I think Luca is the most exciting player on any of the three. No disrespect to John Moran, obviously. Luca's the most exciting. Luca's not not from a highlight perspective, but like in terms of this conversation and what they could do. Right. Um, so okay, I'll I'll clarify and say Luca is the best player in this situation, but I just don't trust the Mavericks organization. I don't know that I count on them making good free agent decisions. I don't know that I trust Jason Kidd at head coach, even though he is unquestionably having a good first season there as we speak. I don't know that I trust the supporting cast right now. I mean, who's who are the second and third best players in Dallas long-term? Like We don't even really have definitive answers to that question. In Boston, you have a much better infrastructure. I'm super high on what Ime Udoka has done as a head coach. I mean, just even looking just at the role that he's carved out for Robert Williams III, you have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, but then we get to Memphis. And John Morant is at least in the best player conversation alongside Tatum and Doncic. And there is just so much depth across the board. A great complimentary player in Jaron Jackson Jr., Another great complimentary player with all-star upside in Desmond Bain. I I think I think I'm still Memphis one, Boston two, Dallas three. I have Dallas third. I'd have Boston one. Just the your two building blocks as Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and being able to fill out from there. And even just like the moves, so, the moves that they could still make because of the players they have, where Marcus Smart, Robert Williams the third, Derek White. All those guys are assets by themselves, both for you. Like Boston probably has of this bunch the best third, fourth, and fifth best player of the three teams. That's important. What What is Jalen Brown though? Because I oh, still don't know. No, I I genuinely still don't know. I mean, he is he is an all star when he's healthy, but we've also seen some pretty prolonged shooting slumps. We've yeah, seen Jackson Juniors never had those. Never ever. <laughs> not not a single one. He's never missed a shot. I just no. I'm not. I'm not comparing him to anyone else. I mean, he is he is the best second option of the bunch. But I don't know. Like, 
the extent to which that's a selling point right now. Because if, if I made you pick right now, how many more times does Jalen Brown represent the Eastern Conference in an All-Star game? You want an exact number? Are you going to give me an over? Yeah. No, just, uh, yeah, over under 0.5. Oh, I'd take the over. You, you would. See, I don't, I don't know that I'm there right now. Like, I, I think that he, I could see him being that, like, Gordon Hayward level where he's always in the conversation but maybe doesn't make it. All right, that's fair enough. I have another team one for you. We're I'm, first of all, we're not that far off. You had Memphis. No, we're not. Yeah, there. we both have Dallas the third. I don't know why you would and like. Trust, I clearly had to think about it. I don't know why you would trust the organization in Dallas at the moment. Like Luca is clearly the best player, but just of all the stuff, like the this dispute now with Donnie Nelson and the organization, where every single side comes off looking like just smelling like shit in this, and, and it's not the first time. No, and it's not. And it's, you know why people were inclined to believe the initial report or the lawsuit from Donnie Nelson? Because the Mavericks organization has a history of like sexual harassment problems within their like of, of yeah. misogyny and yeah. just toxic workplace. Yeah. So I get why people weren't going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I would never like actually comment into this because both sides, first of all, Donnie Nelson was there for everything. And so I can't look at him as like a voice for the victims. I'm like the only people that I'm worried about are the potential victims in this. And that's, but again, I don't want to get into that. My point is, I don't know why you would trust Dallas to do the right thing. The, the Porzingis trade seems to be working out, but they've had like these big aspirations mm-hmm. many times over. And if with, they were able to put a championship team around Dirk, but we have to wait for a year 15 of Luca for that to happen. I don't actually know what year it was in Dirk's career, but I just said that I have another team one for you. Last couple ones here. Yeah, I think you're, are you right? He was he was drafted in '97, right? I'll look it up. One in one in 2011. So I guess that would be year 14. Uh, this is important it, stuff. It was year 13, so I wasn't that far off. What year was he drafted? He his first year in the NBA was 98, 99. He was like, oh, I was off one year. Okay. So I was just throwing. Up so we have another Whoops. like. We have another nine years to go before Luca wins his first title. This one's interesting to me, and I feel like no one's going to appreciate it except for maybe you. Who you got as they enter these new eras? Portland or San Antonio? Hmm. San Antonio. You're just. I thinking- think. I think that Portland has the obvious top centerpiece in Damian Lillard for now. And that's the biggest thing is that with San Antonio, like it has DeJounte Murray. It has other potential building blocks. It has a front office that has consistently unearthed quality pieces. And with Portland, it set itself up really nicely with a bunch of draft picks with a lot of cap space what if Lillard wants out? Like, yeah, it's it's nice to to say that you're entering this restructure around him, and you know if it works, awesome. But what if it doesn't? And I don't I don't think San Antonio has that blow it up and have to start totally from scratch again scenario here. So this might be another one where. Yeah, I mean, if everything goes right, you're taking the Blazers. 
but the chances of everything going right are pretty darn small. And I think that's why the Spurs are the answer because they have more variety at their disposal right now when looking at their direction. Even if you keep Dame, the flexibility that you've prioritized, let's see what it becomes first. Portland has not traditionally been a team that players flock towards. And so I thought it was an interesting one, though, because you still have Dame and a ton of flexibility. Anthony Simons, the fact that he was playing so well before he was shut down on a team that was bad and like playing alongside Trendon Watford, who's not, he's been actually kind of fun the way he moves away from the ball, but that's besides my point. I, it, that his performance translated and that Yusuf Nurkic was playing better before he got injured. There's actual, like Josh Hart went off for like a zillion points the other night. Josh Hart is legitimately good. There is, that's like the least spicy thing that you've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> but I, I thought it was a conversation. And if you keep Dame, I think it actually makes the Blazers case, would you say stronger or weaker to go over the Spurs? Stronger for sure. Just because he guarantees a higher floor. I think I'm with you, but there's also value in the unknown. And it's like, okay, you have Dame. What are you turning this flexibility into? We have to wait and see. I'm I'm inclined to go San Antonio as well. This one was going around on Twitter uh, a week or two ago, and I can't remember who put it out there. Jordan Poole or Tyler Hero? Who you got? I am so... this, This might be the one I'm most on the fence about. Because we we talked in a recent episode about how Tyler Hero deserves to be a max extension candidate. But I also just, maybe I'm biased here because Jordan Poole, I'll, I will spoil this now. Jordan Poole is going to be on my all Hardwood Knox team. I just, I love watching how he operates and the aesthetics of his game. Just the pull-up shooting, the finishing ability around the basket some of the feistiness that you occasionally see on defense, the growing playmaking ability. So he might be my pick here, but I'm, I'm just like, I'm not sure. Can you sell me on either one? Like, do you have a definitive answer? Because this, this to me might be the single best who you got. Cause I just, I, I don't know. I have Tyler hero because I think I just appreciate the, the level of difficulty on the shots he can hit at the clip that he hits them. And Jordan Poole has a little bit of that in him, and he is the better finisher around the rim. I think Tyler Hero is the higher ceiling if you're going to ask someone to run an offense, though. And when you get into a playoff setting, and I don't, on the teams they're on now, neither of these guys, if they're fully healthy, are going to ask to be even the second best player on their teams. Right. Tyler Hero's game to me feels like, on offense specifically, Feels like it will be way more valuable, or maybe not way more, but will end up being more valuable in the playoffs. See, I the, the reason I would push back a little bit there is because while Hero's ability to convert these difficult shots is 100 percent a testament to his skill as an offensive player, I have yet to see him be able to create on a consistent basis non-difficult shots. And he is ultimately operating in a role in which he's often going against backups. Sometimes he's playing alongside the Heat's true stars in a way that he should be able to create easier looks. I have seen Poole do that. I, I get like it. It's, it's great to be able to hit difficult shots. It's better to not have to take difficult shots. And I think Poole is better at earning those easier looks at this stage than Hero is. Hero could get there. 
Poole is the more efficient player, and I do think he's a better passer than people realize, although a lot of it has to do with, I think, who he's passing to at certain points. Right. Um, it's close. I would still lean Hero here because his his ceiling feels like it can be higher if his role is ever expanded, whereas we might be witnessing this is the best version of Jordan Poole. And because of what Tyler Hero does, if you need Jordan Poole to be better than your, let's say, fourth mm-hmm. best player – to me, there are more limitations on your team than if you needed Tyler Hero to be better than your fourth best player. I think I'm, I think I'm going with Pool here, but I'm more like dipping my toe in than jumping all the way in. They're just like when you look at their numbers this season too, which is not something I did before having this. As of we record, it's just so incredibly close. Twenty three point three points per thirty six minutes for Tyler Hero, twenty one point two for Jordan uh, Pool, four point five assists per thirty six for Jordan Pool. 41, uh, 4.2 for Tyler Hero. Uh, Jordan Poole, 60.1 true shooting. That matters. And then you have Tyler Hero, 56.1. That's the also, big... you're probably taking Poole on defense, right? Yeah, you're probably taking Poole. Just the ability for Poole to get to the free throw line, I think, is incumbent of his shot selection. He's going to get there more frequently. Uh, and he shoots over 90% of the foul line, but Tyler Hero shooting 87.1%. That's just not, that's, that's splitting already thrice split hairs there. That's an in- that might be the most interesting one. Though. I think it's the best one. Did you have any others that you wanted to get to? I thought about giving you Austin Reeves or Talon Horton Tucker, who you got. I'm just watching a game that should be on national TV and isn't because the Lakers are. Austin Reeves is pump and drive game, man. Just something to watch. That feels like the best place to end, though, is with the, the pool versus hero one. That's I think be- so, too. Uh, if you have ones that you want us to do or you want a different episode where we do even more crowd solicitation, we didn't take any from Twitter this time, uh, that's something we'll definitely certainly consider doing down the road. This was fun, and it's a very instructive thought exercise, both in the moment and as you're prepping for it. If you've made it this far, please, please, pretty please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Download every episode. If you just are listening to us for the first time, consider throwing us that permanent subscription. We are seriously unserious, but also pleasantly thorough around these parts follow our, all our social accounts those are in the podcast descriptions we are everywhere and anywhere join discord that's in the podcast description as well check out our youtube channel also hardwood Knox. Uh, i believe that's it for me if you have already subscribed and rated reviewed and you've been an active and engaged user consider helping us promote the podcast retweeting our promos the video clips telling friends family members people who you know like hoops about us we always appreciate those recommendations until next time though we use a shout out to the one the only, the king of who you got and would win every single scenario that he was thrust into, but we didn't feel that it was fair to foist him into any of these discussions since it would just mean unjust outcomes to the people he was going up against. Frank Hillegina. <laughs> <laughs>